My guest today is Elisa Hagerty, a conscious leadership coach and host of the School of Unlearning podcast. Elisa was once my coach through Parsley Health, and in this episode, you get experience her beautiful presence and wisdom. One of my intentions with this podcast, and especially lately since renaming it, has been to hold space for stories, the kinds of stories that move us, that remind us who we are, and help us drop back into our hearts. I really believe that in this new, evolved, hopefully, way of consciousness on the planet, it's these heart-based conversations that will propel us forward instead of old paradigm marketing tools, tricks, hacks, and blueprints of what has worked for other humans. So my intention for you with this conversation is that you drop further, deeper, softer into your own truth. Elisa has guided leaders and teams all over the world to shift the way they approach their individual health and health of their teams. Her work considers the role that emotions and radical responsibility contribute to individual and team dynamics by creating experiential programs that foster connection and growth. On a personal level, Elisa has sought to create meaning from every chapter of life, from first heartbreak, first job loss, divorce, and enduring the grief that comes with slowly losing her dad to a rare form of dementia. Along the way, she has studied from leaders in the field of functional medicine like Andrea Nakayama, Gay and Kathy Hendricks, and the founders of the Conscious Leadership Group. We talk about making the choice to write your own story, how teaching English brought Elisa to Hong Kong, how that led into a pivot into becoming a chef, cultivating radical acceptance, finding yourself in a life you didn't plan for, learning to unlearn. Elisa's podcast, The School of Unlearning, is a beautiful exploration of exactly that. I am actually an upcoming guest, and I feel like I've shared in that interview with Elisa things that I had never shared before, so definitely check that out. Elisa also shares her journey of becoming a coach and learning entrepreneurship, finding peace with making money, leaving behind what most would consider a hot job. We talk about adopting the mentality of being the lucky one, career pivots, and what it's like to go on a silent meditation retreat in Taiwan and a recent psychedelic healing experience that Elisa had. Quick disclaimer here, this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your physician for any choices regarding your own health. I am so excited to share with you that my number one podcasting tool since day one of this podcast, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the discount link in show notes and stay tuned for why I love using Zen for the podcast. Elisa, I'm so excited to chat with you again. We recently spoke for your podcast and we went into some really, really deep places that was unexpected. So my intention is that may we go as deep as we're meant to go and have a conversation that serves those who will listen to it, but also offers us something that will serve on our paths of unlearning. Well, thank you, Ksenia, um, for having me on your podcast. I'm honored. And um, 
It's been so fun seeing our relationship as friends and people who work together in some capacity just evolve and now podcasting, you know, sort of together and for um, our worlds respectively. So yeah, let's go. Let's go deep. Let's talk about anything, all things. I had such a good time on your podcast. I think being able to connect the dots between your incredible life story and where you are now is was honestly like kind of gave me chills after I um uh, after we signed off. I was like, whoa, <laughs> like what a life Ksenia has led, and uh, I was really really grateful to kind of uh be alongside to hear it all. Well, I had goosebumps this morning as I was preparing for this recording, and when I was drinking my coffee with oat milk, euphoria powder from Anima Mundi, and mud water. Mm-hmm. I was just scrolling through your Instagram posts and catching up on all things Elisa. And there was a couple of things that just blew me away. I also had those full body goosebumps. And I was thinking how you must be someone who has lived nine lives. You're like, you're one of your cats. <laughs> so that's where I would exactly where I would love to start. In your bio, you say that you help people become or remember who they are meant to be. And for you, looking back at the way you were growing up and things you were into, who did you think you were going to be? And what has surprised you so far? I think it's it's pretty straightforward who I thought I was going to be when I was a kid. I mean, I only I had a very small worldview. I grew up in New Jersey, a little tiny town in uh, northern Jersey, and we didn't really travel a bunch. You know, we might go to like the Ocean City Beach for one week a summer. You know, we had TV, we'd watch TV, but we didn't travel internationally or even throughout the country. So my world was small. So the people who I looked at to aspire to or to like be like were my parents and maybe my coaches and sometimes my older siblings in some context. So I just thought I would be like my dad. I remember my mom actually asked me when I was like four years old, what did I want to be when I grow up? And I said, I want to be a dad. And she said, you don't want to be a mom? I said, no, I want to be a dad. <laughs> and so <laughs> that was interesting. Might have spoken to some level of like admiration for him, but also maybe some gender stuff that I was working through too. I was like, oh, I don't want to be a girl. I want to be a boy. Um, I'm very proudly a woman now, but like the point is, is I just wanted to be like my dad. And then as I grew up through high school, he was a he was for many years a high school English teacher and a basketball coach. And English was the only subject that I did well in. It was the only subject I got a B plus or A A in. Um, it was the only thing that resonated because people and emotions and stories made sense in my brain. Everything else was very hard for me to understand. So I just thought I'll be a high school English teacher until I retire. And that's that. I'll coach basketball like my dad, the high school level, maybe at the college level, because I, I played basketball in high school and college. It was a big part of my growing up and I didn't think for one minute that there was another life beyond that. And even when I was in college, I went to college in upstate New York at a small little school called the College of St. Rose. I still maintained like I'll just be a high school teacher and a coach. And I started to study, you know, English literature and education. And it was so exciting to learn how to become a teacher. And I couldn't have even imagined that I would want to do anything else. So that's what I thought growing up that I would be. And I was that for four years. I was a high school English teacher um, in a little town in New Jersey. Uh, It was so funny. I look pretty young. I don't know if this is going to be video-based, but I look young and people who see me generally don't think I'm 37. And if you don't think I look 37 now, I definitely didn't look 
23 then. <laughs> I was teaching these little high school students and they were like 18, 17 year old seniors. And I, I looked like just like them. And uh, anyway, but I loved it. I loved teaching. It was, I remember thinking, I can't believe I get paid to teach. Like, how cool is this? You know, it's just, it was so beautiful to me. I did that for four years. Um, and then I, I had some pivotal turning moments in my life where I decided to turn my attention to nutrition. Let's talk about those pivotal points. When I think about pivots in life and changes to the direction of whether it's our personal life or career, typically there's two main categories. One is something totally disruptive happens on the outside, most likely unexpected, or it's a result of lots of inner work and finding the courage to stand our truth and make the decisions to be in the unknown. What were some of those things for you? I know there was an accident. What happened? What was the moment where you started unlearning who you thought you were going to be and started on the path that you're on now? My goodness. Um, yeah, it was a it was a brutal week of my life. It was just a seven-day period and three major things happened that I didn't anticipate. So I was 22. I was just finishing up my you know undergraduate schooling and I was getting ready to apply for jobs and become a teacher and live that life. And the woman I was dating, I was dating a woman who lived in Boston who I had a major crush on and I was basically falling in love with her and it was the first woman I really dated or loved. And my family didn't know. My twin sister knew, but nobody else in my world really knew except for maybe a few friends. So I was very much in the closet. I was scared to come out. I was nervous that no one would accept me, love me. And I just, I, yeah, so I was in the closet because growing up again in that small little world, there wasn't a lot of people in the LGBTQ space. <laughs> it wasn't even a thing, LGBTQ. It was like, what's that? It was like, you were gay or you were straight. And there was a lot of stigma that came with being gay. So I didn't come out because I was terrified, but I was also in love. And this woman and I, um, I think it was the month of June and we were dating and dating and then she just said she needed to end things and she needed to be single and spend time on her own. So she broke up with me effectively and I was crushed. I was really heartbroken. Like, you know, the ache in your chest, heartbroke, heartbreak where you're just like, wow, like I, I would have been with this person for a long, long time if she had stayed with me. Um, and I remember feeling grateful though, because I finally got to see what I wanted and experience what I wanted. And I felt really grateful for the experience because I was like, okay, now I, I have less confusion. I just know like it's undeniable that that's the kind of love and connection I want. But I was heartbroken. And then two days later, I was actually, because it was the summertime um, right after college, I was um, a waitress at a local sushi restaurant. And I ended up losing my job, which wasn't a big deal because it was just a waitressing job. But it was like a little blow to the ego, like how do you lose your job over being a waitress? And I actually got fired because apparently I didn't know the seven type, seven different types of salmon on the menu. I couldn't differentiate between them. That's really good to know. Yeah. You've learned that since then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've I've used that a lot since then. But like, you know, I grew up on like M&Ms and peanut butter and jelly, like I, seven types of salmon. Like I didn't know that there were even seven types of salmon on this planet. So I was like kind of annoyed and also just like, oh, whatever. But it was one of those like little moments where you're like, damn, I just lost my job. And then then one day, this is the thing that sort of was the hardest, was I was riding my bike down the street with some friends down a, a major road in 
Morristown, New Jersey. And I was riding quite fast down a hill and I just got doored, which means someone opened their car door and I ran right into their car door and I fell right over and I was, um, I had a serious concussion, a lot of bumps and bruises. And I remember being pretty much out of consciousness for like two to three hours. I don't have memories of that time. My friend said that I just kept I was either completely quiet or I just kept mumbling the same questions like what happened, what happened, what happened. Almost like 90 times in half an hour, I would ask what happened because I was so concussed and out of it. And so within one week, my heart was broken, you know, lost a little job. But more importantly, this car accident, um, this bike accident really uh, gave me some head trauma to, to work through. And I remember waking up at home when I got home to my house uh, later. And I was immediately in a brain fog. I was immediately depressed. And not not like, wow, I just got by a car. It's really traumatic. It's really sad. Like I was depressed within opening my eyes. And it was like a Tuesday. And some of my friends were like, oh, we heard you got in a car accident. We'll come over Thursday. And my first thought was like, well, I don't know if I'll make it to Thursday. Like, I don't, I don't know, TBD. And it wasn't like I wanted to die. It wasn't like I had plans to die. But my brain was like pretty sure <laughs> I wasn't going to make it. So my thought patterns, my narratives were very dark and very heavy. And I kept imagining the worst. I kept imagining everyone at my funeral. And now I have a better sense of why I was imagining those things from like a trauma perspective. I now have better peace of mind as to why I would go that way. My my mind certainly looking for love and looking for affection. But um. Yeah. I mean, that, that was really crazy. And so I ended up like two months later moving upstate to a small town in New York to continue to get my master's degree. I was sort of someone who like, I was so loyal. I had committed to take this job at St. Lawrence University, which was um, a school that was going to pay for my master's if I coached basketball. I'd already committed to this in like May before the accident. And so I felt like, even though I wasn't really stable, I was on antidepressants at that time. I was still crying a lot. I was not recovered from this really hard week. I pushed through it. I took the job. I moved seven to eight hours north to this one stoplight town in upstate New York to get my master's degree when I was basically pretty unstable. But I looked so stoic and I looked so fit and so healthy that no one really knew. And I just, I really struggled that year. But I, I had to unlearn a lot about saying no and boundaries and protecting myself and walking away that year. And I had to I had to also, the most fundamental thing that shifted my life was I had to unlearn self-care. You know, like the medical community just wanted to give me medications, which I'm sure at the time helped me. I'm sure it helped stabilize me. And But it didn't help the thought patterns. It didn't help the, the trauma or the heartbreak. It didn't help the neuroinflammation, which now we know when you get a concussion, like there's actual neuroinflammation, you know, and, and Zoloft wasn't helping that. <laughs> it was keeping me from crying, but it wasn't helping my brain heal. And so that sort of propelled me to go down the path of which became the last 15 years. I started to meditate every day because I was like, I'm not going out this way. Like I'm not, this is not a scary movie. My life is not a bad movie. I'm not going to die this way, right? From depression. So I started to meditate every day. I started to become a vegan because I didn't want to cause harm in the world. So this was all within the months after the accident when I was in that upstate town, like teaching and learning. I was exploring these modalities. And uh, and that's what started me on this path was, was that sort of perfect storm. Something that you've shared in that Instagram post that I mentioned that left me with goosebumps, which I'm going to link to in the show notes, 
is that you made a decision. You made a firm decision that you weren't supposed to go out like that, that the physical and mental damage wouldn't be the end of you. And because of that, you say it was the beginning of a new career, a new community, and a new worldview that still today motivates you to do the work that you do. And every small or big decision in life, it starts with that internal commitment. You know, you talk about our life being an inside job. And it is, it starts with a very, very deep internal choice and commitment before we start anything on the outside. How did you source that courage and decide that this was not what you were going to comply with and you were going to create something totally different, something you hadn't seen around yourself growing up, probably not something you've seen in your family and create a whole new path? Well, I had a couple words that were going through my brain at the time. Again, you know, just for context, I'm 22. I just came out of the closet. I'm now living in upstate New York, like <laughs> in this one one stoplight town with one movie theater. And it was a very interesting town. It was a good community, very good support system, a lot of people my age, but it wasn't a good dynamic. I shouldn't have been that far away from home. But I had a couple things happen. My college basketball coach sent me the book, When Things Fall Apart by Pema Chodron. She's, I called her and I was crying and she said, Elisa, what's wrong? And I said, Karen, I don't know. Like, I don't feel right. And she sent me the book and I didn't know what Buddhism was. I didn't know what things falling apart and non-attachment meant. I was like, what's this? <laughs> what's this? <laughs> you know, my whole worldview was like, put the pieces together, fix them, get shit done, look good, smile and nod, you know, like the American way in some ways. So I started reading that, that really helped plant seeds of non-attachment and like, can I just let things be hard? Can I just let things be broken and just become comfortable with the pieces on the ground and examine them and sit with them? And that for whatever reason, honestly, really spoke to me. I grew up Catholic, so I had a great sense of faith and I do believe in God. I believe in higher everything. I don't believe we're here by accident, but Buddhism really helped me from like a practical level sit with the breath, come back to the breath again and again and again and again. And I had to do that. Like most people who've gone through things and put their attention there, I've had, I had to do that millions of times to get through weeks and months during that time in my life. I, so I had that book, that teaching became a methodology that was very important to me. It still is today. It's very much woven into the work I do today in, in some capacity. Um, but I also just had this word go through my brain and the word was trust. Like you have to trust, you have to trust God. You have to trust whoever put you here on this planet that you are not meant to go out like this. Like this is, this is not your story and you have to write a different story. And I don't know where I got that language from because that wasn't so Buddhist, but that maybe was from being an athlete, um, you know, college athlete where you, every day you, oh, I have a friend visiting us. <laughs> hey, Joe. Is okay, that the Joe. domestic cat or the wild one? Yeah, this is the domestic Josie. If you're watching us on YouTube, there's a kitty cat visiting us. <laughs> oh, adorable. She's the most beautiful cat. I don't know. I So I had this sense of trust that this was, you have to trust that this will lead to something that you couldn't have planned for, but you needed. And I, I had to trust that. And so I just kind of would go to bed sometimes. It was actually interesting. And I'll give you an example of how acutely distressed I was. I was, again, very young studying for my master's, even though like my brain wasn't working. <laughs> and I was, I would lay in bed. I had such anxiety manifested, even though I was on a very high dose of Zoloft. 
I think they gave me like the highest dose possible. I just, I just couldn't cry for the year. That's what happened. I mean, like it was no, there was no expression in moving through the pain and the trauma. It was just like I was stoic. But what happened was I had this knot or this ball in my throat from anxiety, manifested anxiety that no matter how calm I seemed, and I was pretty stoic. I was pretty calm. I was calm breathing. Like every single metric was, was that I was okay. I had this ball in my throat that almost made me not be able to breathe for months and months. And the only way it felt like the way that if you're listening, it felt like I was breathing through a straw. I was like, and I was trying so hard to get air into my lungs and it was like a straw. And I kept telling my therapist and my psychologist, I was like, I don't know what's going on here, but I can't breathe. And I'm calm and I'm trying to breathe. And they didn't, of course, have any answers for me. So for, for like six months, I went to bed with a cough drop in my mouth and I would have it like because the menthol was soothing to my chest. And for whatever reason, it opened up my pathways so that I could breathe. So I, I went to bed for months at a time with the only way I could breathe at night to calm myself down. Even though I was psychologically calm, seemingly, my body was manifesting stress was a cough drop. And then, of course, I got lots of cavities. And then I had to find sugar-free cough drops. But, you know, the the acute suffering and the psychological distress was pretty real for me. But I remember just thinking, you know, you have to trust that this is going to bring you to a new place and you have to use your, your resources, which to me was to be an athlete. So I would run one, two, three times a day, a couple of miles just to move my body. And I would run while I was crying sometimes. It was like the Kelly Clarkson song. You know, you're just like running down the street, like <laughs> singing these sad lyrics. But it was the only way I could get back into my body and feel alive again and feel connected again. And of course, you got that endorphin dopamine rush. So yeah, that was that was that time. What were you studying at the time? I was getting a master's in English um, education, English lit education. So, and that was my undergrad focus. Right. And how much does that serve you today? Zero. Um, the master's degree <laughs> served me zero. I ended up leaving the program early. It was a two-year program. I left after one year. The woman who I was reporting to as a as a assistant basketball coach, we didn't have a good rapport. And I think perhaps my depression triggered her. I don't know, but she wasn't very supportive. And um, a couple things happened. And I ended up calling my mom and dad and saying, I need to come home. Like, this is crazy. I can't be up here by myself. And uh, I came home. And that was, you know, it was an interesting moment. I, I was seeing a therapist on campus. Thank God for this woman. I love her. And I give her a high five if I could. She said to me at one point, because I was like, you know, I've never left the job. I've never quit a team, like, but I can't be here anymore. This is not healthy for me. I can barely sleep at night. Um, I'm crying all the time when I, when I can release. And she said, you know, Lisa, she said, I know you're an athlete. Athletes don't quit. It's woven into your fabric. You know, you, you know, I, for context as an athlete, like I'm not an Olympian, but I was an athlete. So that meant that like, if you go out for a run, like you don't stop, you could break your ankle and you don't stop. <laughs> if you're a runner, you could actually like fall over and hurt something and you'll crawl to the finish line. Like that kind of not quitting mentality. But she looked at me and she said, you know, maybe staying is quitting. Maybe staying is quitting on you and you need to go home. And maybe that's what showing up is. And that was really pivotal for me because it blew up my worldview of quitting and of, of what it meant to invest in myself versus please others. So that was really, really important for me. And shout out to her for helping me see a different way of looking at uh, quitting and self-care. Wow. I once again had full body goosebumps as you were saying that. I can only imagine as an athlete, as someone who is so committed to what seems like linearly 
moving forward, what this took to shine the light on the part of yourself that actually somewhere deep within knew that the more powerful decision is to quit. And I love how you reframed quitting too. You said sometimes staying is quitting, quitting on yourself. Mm-hmm. Why don't we talk about that more? <laughs> mm. Well, I think we're starting to, thank goodness. Um, you know, I think, you know, you look at the Simone Biles situation recently and she absolutely succeeded. She showed up for what her body needed, her mind needed, and then she gave other people on her team an opportunity to step up. But, you know, for women in sports, it's very different than men. Like Michael Jordan, uh, for anybody who knows him, he was the greatest player ever. He he actually quit the Bulls twice. He basically left the team twice. He left the team to go play be- baseball, and then he left the team years later to retire, and then he came back. But he didn't. he didn't quit. He just, he took a leave. But women, when we leave sports, we, we we quit. There's a different stigma around our ability to consciously take a choice to do something else, whether it be have a baby during being a pro athlete or leave for mental health reasons, like we're quitting. But now I think the the language and the conversation is shifting to be more a recognition that it's 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 a sign of courage to do that. But back then, yeah, there wasn't a conversation around that. <laughs> So what happened after? Did you go back to your family and live with them? I did. I, I went back to New Jersey for a couple months and my high school basketball coach, shout out to all the coaches out there in the world. If you ever <laughs> coach to sport to keep in touch with your players. So again, I said my my college basketball coach sent me the book by Pema Chodron, which was a life-saving book. I still have it today. And my high school basketball coach heard about what was going on. And she talked to me and she said, hey, like there's a job at my school. She was teaching at a school called Hopewell Valley in New Jersey. And there's a a woman going on maternity leave in the English department. We need someone to come in for, you know, May and June just to finish the school year for like two, three months. And so I went through the interview process and I got the job and I was a, I was a certified teacher, but I was new. It was my first job, maternity leave position. So I took that job and then they ended up, the woman ended up not coming back to teach the following year. And so I ended up staying at that school, the high school, for two years and for teaching English. Uh, and that was a really important couple of years for me to be in the workforce, to be with a stable community, to have my own little cute apartment about a half an hour away from my parents. It was a very good transition for me to be there. And I was teaching English and I was loving it. I was also struggling because it was, it was very rigid and hard and challenging, but I also loved the act of teaching. So I taught for two years. And then at the end of the second year, Chris Christie cut like millions of dollars from the education department that year in 2000, 2010, I think. And uh, all of the younger younger people in the school lost their job where they were placed to different areas uh, to teach in the school district. So I was the youngest teacher in the English department. I lost my job. And so two years after that huge trauma, after I was sort of settled and I felt like I had a place in the world, a cute apartment, I had a cat, <laughs> I was living the, living the dream, I, uh, I lost my job. And I remember being so heartbroken because I was just angry. Like I was doing what I was supposed to do. I was a high school teacher. I was coaching basketball for the girls team. I had this adorable apartment, a little cat, you know, and I was still struggling with some of the side effects of depression was still there, but it was much better. I got off the medications. I again, started to become vegan and learn how to eat. I was really growing, um, but I lost my job. And so then I did the only rational thing I could do, which was I packed my bags and I moved to Hong Kong. So, <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Why Hong yeah. Kong out of all places in the world? Well, I had applied to different jobs. Um, I applied to jobs all over at international schools because I wanted to 
have my study abroad moment. I, in college, when you play basketball, you don't get to do fun things. You just play basketball. You work out all the time. So I never got to study abroad. So I applied to schools in Saudi Arabia, Colombia, you know, all over Asia. And Hong Kong offered me a job. And they were honestly just the most, at the time, the safest place to be. It's the most Western place to be. It was like the closest bridge for me to get to, to be in a foreign country, but also to, you know, be in, in, in a bit of a British and English culture. So, yeah, I chose Hong Kong. I remember when I first started my podcast, it seemed like solving a tech puzzle. But I've been using Zencaster since day one, and it's made it so easy. It provides crystal clear sound and gorgeous HD video. What I love about it is that it records separate audio and video tracks for me and my guests, so the editing process is a lot more customized. Plus, there's secured cloud backups, so I've never lost an episode. It's super easy to use. There's nothing to download. My guests just have to click the link and we start recording. I am a huge fan of Zencaster, and I haven't even tried the Rad Extra functions yet, like post-production and transcriptions. Go to Zencaster.com forward slash pricing and enter promo code Xenia to get 30% off your first three months with pro account or try it for free with a hobbyist account. That is Z-N-C-A-S-T-R.com forward slash pricing promo code Xenia K-S-E-N-I-A or click the link in the show notes. It's time to share your story. So there you are having been redirected by life a couple of times and you find yourself in Hong Kong and you're still teaching English. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I took an English teaching job there. And what happened in Hong Kong that led you onto the career path that you're on today? Or what were some chapters that you experienced while you were there that led you to that? Well, it was... Um... I remember when I first lost my job in New Jersey, I was uh, dog sitting. I had a side job to be a dog walker because teachers need side jobs. And <laughs> I I was walking this dog. I just got the news that my job was cut. I was going to be leaving the department. And I was sort of ashamed and embarrassed, but mostly just like sad. And I remember thinking like, again, going back to that mantra that I had a few years prior at St. Lawrence University, I remember thinking like, you know, there has to be something good here. There has to be something that is purposeful because this does, these things don't just happen by accident, right? And I remember thinking like, you know, maybe I'm the lucky one. Maybe I'm the one that got away. Like maybe I'm the lucky one. And that to me, that was very important. It wasn't just like icing on the cake. Let's reframe it to be positive, Pam. You know, there was when I was teaching for those two years, a sense of suffocation because when you get a job at a school like that, at a really good high school in a school like New Jersey that I was at, you don't leave. Like people get tenure track positions, they have great benefits, they have pension, and you you know the narrative. You look around you and people have been at that school for 20, 30 years. And I remember thinking like, I want to be here, but I haven't lived a life yet. Like I haven't seen the world yet. You know, I haven't done anything yet. I've been in upstate New York and now here. So this can't be it. So I remember thinking like, maybe I'm the lucky one. And I started a blog, which back then was a big deal because like, what was the internet? I didn't really use it that way. Was it <laughs> on Blogspot? <laughs> I think I use like a, yeah, Blogspot actually. Americans were using Blogspot and Europeans were using LiveJournal at the time. Oh, so cute. And I had no idea what to do, how to write it. I was just, so I called it the lucky one. It was the lucky one blogspot.com. 
And it was really cute. And I started to frame things and talk about my journey of traveling in the world. And, you know, when I was in Hong Kong, I was teaching English and again, coaching basketball, continuing on with the original pursuit of the dream. And um, I was then definitely getting a lot into more meditation. I was starting to go to Vipassana retreats in Taiwan, which was its own experience. It was so wild. And I started to then meet up with people in the raw food and vegan community in Hong Kong. And they really adopted me and they taught me how to make raw chocolate. They taught me how to make like superfood drinks. And and I just fell in love with this really cute niche community. There was probably like 30 of us in Hong Kong that were like interested in raw food and veganism and like superfoods. Back then, nobody was, not even in America, people thought I was crazy. So I kind of had this little world adopt me and I lived there for two years and I learned how to become, you know, my own sort of like self-taught chef. I, I also went for context for you, Ksenia, and anyone listening, like I didn't know how to boil an egg prior to Hong Kong. I didn't know how to like, I knew how to like make po- pasta, box pasta, and that was about it. So I didn't have any culinary or nutrition background at all. I was like, you know, I'll eat like granola bars and like, you know, Skittles. Like I was really a sugar addict and I was really not, <laughs> not domesticated from the culinary perspective. So I met these friends. They kind of taught me. I took some cooking classes. I started doing meditation retreats and I became very immersed in that world. And then um, I also was studying at the time at the Institute for Integrative Nutrition to become a health coach because I just wanted to learn in the evenings. I wanted to have something that was like not English lit. I was just growing and I was doing it for myself because I wanted to learn more about food and mood and how food was going to help my energy and my mental health. And it definitely did. The depression pretty much went away. I still had some, you know, uh, moments and memories and dark thoughts that would come up, but it was pretty much like so regulated because of meditation and non-attachment that I would see these things and they would just go away. And I wasn't triggered anymore by the depression, which was great. It was an amazing skill and it still is today. Um, anyways, so I started teaching these students. They're adorable. They're all from like, you know, if you imagine me as a young woman from New Jersey walking into a an int- basically a, a school system that was, it's a British school system, but everyone there was mainly from mainland China. All the students were from Taiwan, Hong Kong. So it was pretty much like um, an Asian culture and school system. And I walked in and all my students, the first day, they stood up at attention from me when I entered the classroom because I was the teacher, like as a sign of respect. Hey, that sounds like the Soviet Union. Yeah, well, <laughs> they all came from China and they don't, there's no, the discipline's a big deal. And I remember being like, why are you guys standing? I didn't even understand why they would be standing when a teacher entered the room, and like dead silence, respect. And finally, I was like, you guys have to sit down when I enter the room. I'm from New Jersey. I don't need you to stand for me. <laughs> so they were really cute. Anyway, so I taught them for two years, this group of students. They were all ESL students. I taught them ESL and literature. But I also started to notice one thing. They didn't know how to eat. They were eating Western foods. They were coming into school with their lunch and it wasn't like homemade meals. It was like Popeye's or whatever, or like Burger King or Kung Fu Panda. It was all Western food. And I was heartbroken because I remember I was studying nutrition. I was learning about goji berries. And all of a sudden my students were coming in with like French fries. And I was like, you are literally from the hills of Taiwan and you're eating French fries. Like this is not okay. And so I actually started a smoothie club at the school where I taught the kids and the students how to make smoothies three days a week. And I started a cooking class one day a month where people could come and learn how to make quinoa and XYZ. And I was just me practicing. It wasn't like I was trying to make it a career. I just was like, okay, people aren't learning how to eat here. And like, I know a tiny bit, so let me share it. And it became this like kind of movement 
And I ended up having people say, I want to work with you. Can you help me? You know, I have gout, I have diabetes, I have hypertension. Can you help me? And I was like, well, I can do the basics, which is get you off sugar and have, have you eat whole foods. And I did that. And that's really what started me thinking, you know, I can't teach English literature anymore. People need to learn how to eat. This is the most fundamental thing, not just for gout and diabetes, of course, but for mental health. And so that's really what started it. I remember one distinct memory. I would, in Hong Kong, it's a series of islands. It's like many, many, many islands just connected. And I lived on a little island called Ma Wan. And before Vitamix Life, I had this huge blender from like a local supermarket. It was like this massive blender. It was high powered, but it was big and heavy and clunky. And on the Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays when I was holding the smoothie club at the school, I would pack that thing up and I would get on, <laughs> go on the train and on the ferry and on the subway, the three modes of transportation to get to the school for like an hour commute every day. And I was like, you know, I didn't think about it at the time, but I look back and I'm like, that's a lot of dedication to just teach kids how to make smoothies and adults how to make smoothies. And finally, I got the school to buy a blender that I so I didn't have to bring my own. But it was like that kind of gritty, like, nah, like people have to learn how to eat and I can help them and let's have fun with it. So that was one of those moments I look back where I'm like, oh, I was meant to do something more than teach English at the time. So before we get into how the culinary pharmacy was born, I would love to hear a little more about the silent meditation retreats because at the time, it still wasn't nearly as known or popular as it is today. So how did it come into your awareness and how did a person from New Jersey who hadn't really traveled the world find this adventurousness in you and this trust to go to a totally different country and be in silence for probably a prolonged period of time? Yeah, good question. It was definitely not something I knew growing up at all. Um, but, you know, once I started to study Buddhism and and do my own little meditation practice every day, um, at about that time when I moved to New Jersey to teach English, I met a woman who I started dating at the time. And we dated for eight years. Her name was Kathy and she was my partner. And she was like older than me, like by six years. But she was very big into veganism and very big into meditation and spirituality. So she was actually really influential for me and helpful. She cheered me on. She supported me. She would send me books. And we had a very beautiful relationship. And I'm very great. I needed her in my life at that time. I didn't know I did, but I really did. And so when I went to Hong Kong, she stayed back in, she was living in Baltimore and we had a long distance relationship for a few years and she would come out to visit me, but we talked every day. She was my partner. Right. And she was like, you know, listen, I just did a Vipassana retreat. I'm like, what's that? And she told me 10 days of silence, 10 hours of meditation a day. And she did hers in like Fairfax, Virginia, where the, the culture was different. <laughs> you know, she was eating like, you know, cinnamon raisin oatmeal with like energy bars and like matcha for breakfast, right? Because it just had a, a different, I'm surprised they actually had such a flexible menu. But for those listening, Vipassana is not meant for external pleasure. It's like the food is supposed to be bland. There's not supposed to be salt and pepper. Like it's not, there's no onion and garlic. So, so she came back from this Vipassana retreat, high as a kite, totally like excited and newfound insight and awareness. And she's like, you got to go. So we started researching and we found one in Taiwan. And during my spring break uh, as a teacher, I think it was my first year there, she's like, you have to go. It'll be so important for you, et cetera. And that's why I trusted her and I loved meditation. So I was like, all right, let's do this, you know? So for spring break, all my friends were going to like the Philippines and Thailand for like 
you know, spring break. <laughs> and I was going to Taiwan for a silent meditation retreat. And I cried the entire way on the plane to Taiwan because I was terrified. Because, you know, if you've gone through depression, if you've gone through any sort of life experience, to know that you're going to go sit with yourself for 10 hours a day in, ten in silence, in meditation, it's terrifying. So I cried, but I was like, I'm going to do it. I get on site to this little tiny monastery in the middle of Taiwan. It took like four cars, four trains to get there. And I was the only woman who wasn't Asian there. So everyone thought I was like Elizabeth Gilbert from Eat, Pray, Love. They were like, What's, who's this <laughs> little person who's not from mainland China in Taiwan? And immediately the nun at the monastery interviewed everybody to make sure we're all there for the right reasons. And she's like, why are you here? And I'm like, I love meditation. She's like, but why are you in Taiwan? I'm like, because I live in Hong Kong. It's the closest. So we had this very funny back and forth where she was welcoming, but she was also kind of skeptical of like why I was there. <laughs> and she goes, you know, I don't think you're going to like the food here. And I said, I'm, I'm fine. I'm vegan. I know how to eat all the vegan foods. I love food. Like I'm pretty good with that. And she's like, yeah, but it's not your typical kind of vegan food. And so as the days went on, I saw, I saw what she meant. It was literally like congee, which is watered down rice with some like pickled onions and you know, peanuts uh, for breakfast and lunch. And we had an apple at five o'clock. So it's pretty good to me. I mean, after seven days, I'd probably be bored. But generally, <laughs> if I could pick one food to eat for the rest of my life, rice would be a pretty high up their choice. Rice, yes. High, high five for rice. So yeah, like it just was, it was very unflavorful food. Like there wasn't salt and there wasn't the extra fun things that make congee and all those things really delicious. But long story short, I was fine. I didn't complain. And this was just a funny moment in the experience. So the 10 hours of meditation every day were brutal. I don't know, Kasani, have you done a Vipassana or? I have not done a Vipassana, but I have done silent meditation retreats here in upstate New York at the Isabella Friedman, where it's a combination of Buddhism, contemplation, and some Jewish ritual. So yes, not very strict. The food was pretty good. Not yeah. as strict of an experience of what you're referencing, but yes, I have sat with me and my myself and my thoughts for many, many hours a day. Yeah. It's a really cool experience. I mean, you start to see a lot. You're like, oh, that's happening. <laughs> and you learn to identify the different voices in your own head and actually be able to have conversations with the parts of you that don't typically get hurt. And that's why they feel hurt or angry or sad. And that's definitely one of my bigger takeaways from one of those retreats. Yeah, I, I agree with the voices. And I think it also helped me heighten that sense of awareness, like to observe, to observe, to observe all the thoughts and the feelings and the bodily sensations. And I think that gave me a lot of confidence to continue to go through life. Um, so the meditations themselves were like 10 hours a day was a lot. Um, I remember just feeling really stiff and like I wanted to work out, but you're not allowed to work out at Vipassana. You're not allowed to journal. You're not allowed to read. It's just inward. So it was it was intense. I don't necessarily think that people need to go through Vipassana to have great value in meditation practice, but it was just the thing I did. So this nun comes up to me at like day four or five. And again, you also take a vow of silence at this Vipassana retreat. You can't talk to anybody. Um, not that it would have mattered because no one actually spoke English around me and I didn't speak Taiwanese and <laughs> Mandarin. So I was more or less not able to communicate. So this nun comes up to me and she said, you know, you don't have to talk, you don't have to break your silence, but we're worried you're not eating enough food. By the way, Ksenia, I was eating like bowls of rice. I was happily eating all the food. I was like ravenous. I was, I was fine with the food. I didn't complain. And uh, anyway, so they, they slipped me a sleeve of Oreos and a sleeve of Ritz crackers. 
because I'm American. <laughs> and I'm like, and you're not supposed to take outside food. That's the whole, there's principles. And so she's like, don't worry. We just want to make sure that you eat enough and that you're okay. And I was like, so I'm like breaking a rule, taking outside food, eating outside food. Like, but I, I sat there through my next meditation class and I'm like salivating thinking about these Oreos, which by the way, I didn't even eat Oreos. It was just an American food that they thought I would like. And so I, I eat the Oreos later that night because I was so hungry and I just, you know, I was like, I've made peace with breaking that vow. But anyway, it was just a really, really great experience to do that. And I think the one thing that stood out to me was I had a very good sense of appreciation for like equanimity and observing this strong energy that we label good and strong energy we label bad and just seeing how neutral they are and just seeing them as energy. And like, that's really nice to know intellectually, but to sit with that for day after day, it was really helpful for me. And it, I think it de-escalated a lot of the fear around depression that was still there. Like, will it come back and what will I do? And and that was really helpful for me. But uh, yeah, I came back a very different person. My friends came back from like, you know, Thailand and <laughs> so. Bottomless Mai Tais. That's right. Yep. And the beaches of the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Wow. So at what point after that was the culinary pharmacy gone and ha- what was the journey from not knowing how to boil an egg to guiding people to do that, including myself, because you were my coach at Parsley Health at some point, And that's how we initially met. And you were supposed to be my health coach, which I think in a lot of ways, and for a lot of people was a food coach type of person. But in my experience, every time we connected, it was really mindset training. If there was something spiritual coming up, we would talk about that. And it was way beyond anything that I expected. And that's what you do, you know, and now I'm seeing where that's coming from and how all of these tools that you were picking up for yourself along the way ended up being a toolkit that you now offer others through whether that's one-on-one or your podcast or the retreats that you have been a leader on. What else happened there? I want to ask you about like the main learnings, but I also don't want to miss any chapters because each of the chapters you've shared so far has so many fun stories. So just take us into whatever feels relevant next. Sure. So at the end of my two-year contract for that school in Hong Kong, I remember thinking like, I have to go back to America. My dad had just been diagnosed with a form of uh, sort of early form of like B12 deficiency and like potential dementia. That was 2009. And I was scared for him and I didn't know what that meant. And I started to, you know, think, okay, I'll move back to New Jersey and I'll find something to do. But then my partner was like, well, why don't you go to culinary school in New York? And why don't you like make this your career? Because I was teaching cooking classes. I had private clients at the time. On the weekends, I was in people's apartments in Hong Kong teaching them how to make energy bars and uh, soba noodles and all kinds of cool things and smoothies. And I was really like, I was working like two full-time jobs by the time I left Hong Kong because people loved what I was doing and I loved to do it. And I was saving up money and I finally was like, you know, I can't go back to teaching English. That's backwards. And this is forwards and I have to go forward. And so I took my partner's advice at the time. I enrolled at the Natural Gourmet Institute, which is just a little culinary school in Manhattan. It's a one-year program, but it was a really big leap for me. It was a big financial leap. It was like $25,000. And I remember thinking like, (laughs) I don't even have $25,000 saved, but I'm going to put it on a credit card and I'm going to figure it out. And I, I did. And my partner and I moved to Brooklyn. And gosh, that was 10 years ago now. So 
yeah, moved to Brooklyn. I already was a little bit of credit card debt from culinary school, but I was like hell bent on making things work. And um, that's when culinary pharmacy started was that summer uh, when I moved back. And it started because I was doing the work already and I wanted to create a space where the clinical met the culinary in a way that allowed people to make small changes that led to you know, bigger health and lifestyle transformations. And my foot in the door was honestly just very genuine. You know, I, I mentioned the Skittles before and M&Ms, but I had a really big sweet tooth growing up in New Jersey and my life. And that and when I was in Hong Kong, it got better because I learned how to use honey and maple syrup and, you know, monk fruit and all these things at the time. But I was still really addicted to sweets. And I remember I moved to Brooklyn two blocks away from Clementine Bakery, which is a gluten-free bakery here in Brooklyn. And I remember like every morning I would like walk over and like have this walk of shame to go get like two gluten-free muffins and like walk back to my little apartment, sit in front of my computer and try to build a nutrition business. And I was like, girl, you're addicted to sugar. <laughs> so I felt a little bit of shame, but it was also like, well, whatever, like solve for the thing that you most need. And so I created, um, I created an online course. It was like very basic in the beginning. I just like basically asked people to join my course for like $20. I was like, just donate, just come. I want to teach you how to balance your blood sugar and how to eat better sweet foods and have more protein in your diet. And so it was very, very basic in the beginning. And, and that started, you know, that was an eight year journey of me teaching courses online, creating courses and helping people individually through culinary pharmacy. And that was my first little company that I ran and I'm still really proud of it today. And, you know, food was my foot in the door, but I think you're right, Ksenia, like I cared more about the life behind the food, the emotional landscape, the spirituality. I cared about that. I knew, I knew that people knew not to eat donuts for breakfast, but it was just, <laughs> there was other things going on in their world that I was curious to bring out. So. When you were talking about how you found ways to use meditation and food to balance your mental state while you're living in Hong Kong. A word that popped into my awareness and hasn't left since is chocolate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Was chocolate mm -hmm. one of those foods? Because I know you and I both love dark chocolate. And I would love to know how that became a big part of your nutrition and I would say emotional health. Yeah. Well, I love chocolate growing up. When I was a baby, and there's a funny, cute story my dad wrote about too in a town newspaper once. When my twin sister and I have a twin, when we were toddlers, we were still crawling age, they put us in the town diaper derby in Pennsylvania. And at the in the diaper derby, it's just put your babies in a diaper and let them crawl the 15 feet from start to finish. It was just like a really cute town event. I know like it sounds really wild, but Anyway, so we were crawling and all the parents at the end of the finish line had dolls and sparkly objects and like, I don't know, like unicorns and shit. <laughs> and my parents had a bag of M&Ms. My parents were like, they knew that we wanted M&Ms at, at the infant age. And so that started my love affair with chocolate. And my twin sister and I won. We won first place and second place in this diaper derby for babies. And we, we won a year subscription of like free diapers, which my parents were elated at because with seven kids, there wasn't a lot of money. So my first love was M&Ms from like a chocolate perspective. Um, and as the years went on, I still was in love with chocolate, but it was like Milky Ways and Hershey's, like all the things I grew up with. And then when I moved to Hong Kong, my friends taught me how to make raw chocolate with like really great sweeteners. And it became became something that was like, I could use my hands. I could gift it to people. It was like, you know, chocolate is exotic. It's very complex. It seems hard to make. It's also erotic. It's also like a community builder and it became a gift. So I would just gift it to all my friends in Hong Kong and they thought I was like this magical chocolate maker. And I was like, no, it's pretty easy. 
And then, you know, in culinary pharmacy, I wanted to make sure people didn't feel deprived. I never wanted people to think that like I'm making healthy food and therefore I can't have good things. And so I was, my motto in culinary pharmacy was like, let's just upgrade things. If you love chocolate, if you love Reese's peanut butter cups, let's just make them better. And I never wanted people to go without and have like a, you know, strict uh, diet in that way because I knew that wasn't sustainable. And plus I wanted to eat chocolate too. So it just became that. And then when I started working for Parsley Health, I would gift it to people. I would come into the office and I would literally just bring homemade chocolate for them. And I think I made friends with everybody that way because they knew knew what to expect when I came in the office. So I love that. So the part that we kind of skipped over is the fact that you were an English teacher and an athlete. And then all of a sudden you became an entrepreneur. Where did you pick up the skills and how did you know how to create those courses, run them and sell them and actually make a business out of something that you was so alive for you? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I definitely benefited from the job that I had as a teacher because it gave me structure and like I do well with structure. You know, as an entrepreneur, if you're listening, you know that it's hard and you know, Ksenia, to, to be... It's sometimes there's benefits to have flexibility, but also some people do better with structure. And teaching English helped me a lot, see how to work and how to get things done in a timely fashion. But I also knew that like I couldn't stay in that model. So I hired a business coach when I moved to Brooklyn. And this business coach helped me understand some really basic things like how to not trade time for money and how to scale ideas and how to package my brilliance and make sure I'm not repeating myself 90 times a week and that I could do that in an online course. And that really helped me. It also helped me make peace with like making money. I had a hard time with making money by helping people. I felt like I shouldn't be charging what I was charging and I didn't know how to navigate that space. And now I don't feel weird about that at all. But in the beginning, it was weird to go from being a salary-based employee to like asking people like, or telling people like, this is my fee and I can help you, but there's an exchange of energy here. And I had to do some reckoning with my money relationship then. I would love to go a little deeper into that because that's a topic that comes up still so much. And as you know, the name of my podcast was for a couple of months funded by Source. And as I discovered in a recent medicine journey, one of the reasons for that is because I myself didn't fully believe that I can be fully provided for by Source if I just show up as myself and do what feels alive. And... There's some deep ancestral stories that live within us all. And for some of us, they feel expansive, but for most of us, probably not. So I would love to hear what your flavor of those stories was and what it took to reframe them and step into that courage of charging for your services. Yeah. I mean, I think the most fundamental thing was the the difference of just having to charge people. Again, being a teacher, you just get a paycheck and it's direct deposit, you don't think about it. So it's like, it's like clean, it's crisp, it's easy. There's nothing confusing. <laughs> you always want to make more as a teacher, but it just is what it is. And when I was an entrepreneur, I loved the hustle though. I also loved knowing that I could make more one month than I made the month before if I simply wanted to, or if I wanted to help more people. So that was really invigorating. I felt like I didn't have a ceiling on how much I could make, which was really nice for the first time. Cause as a teacher, I mean, geez, I could barely pay rent. You know, I can, I had to have multiple jobs on the weekends to make ends meet. So I was excited about the idea of it, but I was also terrified because, and the reason I was more terrified was more that like, am I qualified enough? That was, that's been a big thing for me in my life because I was never a good student. I, I wasn't technically a dietitian. I was a certified health coach. 
I mean, I was what I was. I was staying in my lane, but I was also like ushering people to the right medical doctors. And I had some clinical language and, you know, I had knowledge, but I, I had a lot of people say things to me, especially in my family who were like, who are you to give advice? So what, you took a one-year program, you can give people advice now. And it was really harsh and actually unkind. And I haven't really forgotten that. I've transformed that energy, but I haven't really forgotten the way that people were super critical instead of supportive and interested. I I think they felt threatened that someone in their life would be able to give a dietary advice or help people. And I didn't spend six years studying for it. So it was almost like I wasn't valid in the the eyes of some people uh, in my family. And that felt really really, really hard. And I, I really hated that. So for me to charge money was like, am I worth it? Like, you know, do I have enough degrees? And I remember just doing a lot of spiritual work and my business coach helped me. And I was like, yo, look, like I can help people. It's an exchange of energy. You know, if, if I could pay my rent in sea salt, like we used to, I would, but I, I can't. So like, you got to pay me if you want to have this value. And I started to realize once I helped people, how valuable it was. I mean, people were reversing diabetes. They were losing weight. They were crying less. They were excited to eat food again. And I'm like, you know, like I can't charge you thousands of dollars, but I can charge you a couple hundred. And I I feel really good about that because I felt it myself, you know, to feel stable in your body and your mind because of food and mindfulness. Like there's almost no monetary money that they could be put on that. So I ended up making peace with it. But what's been influential recently in my life has been a book called The Soul of Money. Lynn Twist. Lynn Twist, yeah. And that has been a really profound book. Um, The most profound thing I loved about it was she said, you know, the opposite of scarcity is not abundance, it's sufficiency. And so every day sometimes I'm like, do I have enough today? Do I have enough food? Do I have enough money? Do I have enough energy today to do just sufficient? And what's interesting is back then when I was an entrepreneur in the very younger stage of my life, I was, I had a very different mindset. Everything was abundance, abundance. I can have abundance. I can have everything. I can have abundance. And it was very grandiose and quite privileged way to look at income. And now I don't have that. I still want to make a good living, but I also am more focused on sufficiency and just having a better relationship with what I have and making use of what I have versus having abundant of everything. You know, that was a weird narrative I somehow got onto when I was younger. So that led you to working for Parsley Health and being one of the first employees for one of the biggest health startups. Wasn't that back then, but it definitely was on the cutting edge of combining functional medicine with the latest Western tests and technologies and some alternative approaches to health and well-being from really a wider perspective than any other health interactions I had had before. And you recently transitioned out of that. So I would love you to share whatever feels relevant from that chapter of your life and what that has taught you. Yeah, five years of Parsley Health uh, was was really, really incredible. Um, we started like with a bunch of like 10 or 12 of us in New York City. It was like we were the cool kids at the table drinking kombucha and like we had something that we thought the world needed. And we had this very sort of like gung-ho, like entrepreneurial, like startup hustle mindset. And we spoke the same language. We were all in the know. Basically the company in the beginning was all clinical. There wasn't, we didn't have executives. We didn't have business people really. We had like literally doctors and coaches running the business in the very early days. And then it became a business. It became a corporation. It became something I'm still really proud of today. 
Um, but my journey throughout that was like a lot of harsh growth, a lot of beautiful growth. I had incredible relationships and friendships and mentors along the way. And I became, I became someone different. But then as I left the company, I got back to what I'm actually always been good at, which is just coaching people. And I decided I came in as a health coach. So I came in to coach people in nutrition, as you know, from our sessions. But I decided to leave the company and go back to what I was really great at, which is being a coach. Well, I, I felt good at. And I decided that I was no longer going to be coaching nutrition. I was going to be coaching people on you know, consciousness and their inner landscape. And to me, that was always what I was doing. I was just doing it through food. And now there's just no, we're not, we're not wasting time talking about the avocados and the lunch and the calories here. We're talking about something. We're just going right to it. And so my work now is really a dance between helping people understand their relationship between fear and love and how that shows up for them in their life and, and providing them the tools and the resources to to be more agile in their own emotional landscape so that their world is is more joyful and less uh, less full of drama. And you also recently started your podcast, The School of Unlearning, which you abbreviate as soul. Mm -hmm. Was that a, was that intentional? It actually wasn't. It wasn't. I just put the school of unlearning and, and then my friends like, you know, that the acronym is soul. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Um, so it just kind of came out that way. It is very interesting. You know, soul has been something that's come on my path very recently, very, very strongly as I increased my capacity to zoom out from it's interesting. On the one hand, it's the zooming out from daily human activities and goals and things that I think I'm building in life and view it from the perspective of soul. But on the other hand, it's very much zooming in and seeing how present can I feel in this human body? Because this is the body I was given for this lifetime and I better make peace with it and I better find some fun along the way. So what do you think that word soul that came into your life as I'm learning is unintentionally, what is that here to teach you in this chapter of your life? I haven't thought about the acronym being like a sort of a message or a, a conduit to think a little bit deeper about that. But I do know that prior to creating the podcast, I was really struggling from like a finding meaning and purpose and being in flow perspective, like at Parsley, you know, I just, I started doing jobs that were well outside of my scope and things that I didn't really actually have the skills to do. And I felt really defeated and really frustrated and misused. And I was like, I need to find meaning in my work. And right now it's not in spreadsheets. It's not in endless meetings. And I feel dead inside, frankly. And so I need to find my, my heart again and my, my soul again. And that's why I started my own coaching business. But the podcast was also unintentionally a soulful experience. And it's become more and more of that. I mean, like my conversation with you, like, like I didn't, I started the podcast to again, create the thing I needed, which was meaningful conversations. But what it's brought me is like these really close relationships with people who I've always admired or been friends with or looked up to. And it's added, I, I hope for both myself and the guests, like a layer of understanding to their story, which has been really, really cool. So I think it's it's given me the solace that I that I needed for many years when I was at Parsley that I didn't feel like I had and the autonomy to create it. You know, like I don't have to jump through 60 hoops to create a podcast. I just get to show up, be myself and talk to people in a meaningful way and share their stories with the world. And you know, you do this too. It's like it's immediate gratification, it's immediate connection and it's storytelling which I mean, I don't think there's much more on the planet that keeps us going other than storytelling and powerful stories. So it's been really really a blessing in that way. Yeah, I feel that podcasting is 
the modern way together around fire and share our hearts out and feel that connection to humans we may meet or we may never meet. You know, there's some podcasts that I listen to and I feel so connected to the host and I feel like our souls are on this journey together. And that's an interesting thing that technology has offered us. So something that I think about is non-linearity, non-linearity of career paths, non-linearity of spiritual development. And in your case, you are sort of going back to where you started, to coaching and helping people in one-on-one capacity. And it takes courage to do that, to let go of the norm of, wow, I'm working for this super hot company that's in all the magazines, that's getting all the recognition, and I'm going to go back to being on my own, to figuring out ways on my own to get money in the bank, to do what I need to do for people to know that I have these coaching services. What what was the moment or what was the journey or some guiding principles or thoughts or mantras or resources that gave you that clarity to move forward with this decision to go back to coaching? Well, I think I had known for about a year that it was not I was dating potential by the end, like the potential that a job could turn out better at the company. And I was really hopeful and I tried and I think it just didn't fit in terms of what the company needed and how I was used. And I just decided it was time to graduate. And what made me say that, because I was terrified to lose a job like that, to have lose a community like that, lose benefits, like that's great. I love getting paid consistently, not having to worry about it. Like it's so wonderful. But I also was not being used and I was not using my own skills the way that I feel like I could. So I went to Costa Rica in June with some friends. We worked remotely for a few weeks and I did a um, a mushroom experience and I I went on a journey and I had a really profound experience where I made some peace with with death, with the loss of slow loss of my dad. That he's still enduring neurological decline these days. And I, one of the moments in the journey where I was on the mushrooms, um, I, you know, I just was told there's so much more, there's so much more, there's so much more, and you don't have to be afraid. And it, I think it was directed towards him and his loss of life these days, and my my fear for him when he leaves this planet and his physical form. But I just was told there's so much more, there's so much more. And I sort of came home the next day when I got back to New Jersey and New York. I I talked to my boss at the time and I just said, like, I can't do this. And I just like started crying. And it was just this friction that needed to be confronted. But having that mushroom experience a few times when I was there in Costa Rica gave me the confidence and sort of the spiritual 360 zoom out perspective of like, there's so much more and it could be so much better. And go try that, you know, and and um and so that was a really pivotal thing. I don't know if I would have, I don't know if I would have left on my own without an experience like that. Was this the first time that a psychedelic experience shifted your path? It was the first time I ever did a psychedelic experience. I never, oh, wow. I never did mushrooms before. And my friends and I were really intentional about it. Like we wrote down our intentions, we fasted, we were doing it not to escape. We were doing it to connect. And so I had an intention to actually talk to my dad when he was younger. I wanted to hear him again and hear his voice and his charisma um, and his old way of being. And that didn't happen, but a lot of good things happened. And um, I made peace with quite a bit of his journey. And and also I realized there's so much more. Wow. To know that this was your first psychedelic experience and that you immediately took 
made these decisions that are quite life and career altering, it takes pretty radical trust in connecting to your intuition, connecting to source, connecting to the guidance you received. How are you integrating what you saw in the journey? And what were some of the other things that are now embedded into your daily experience? Well, I think integration for me has been the doing. It's been coming home and talking about that experience and sharing it with people and letting them know what I heard and what I was told. And that has been really helpful for me to like cement it into my being. I shared that with my mom, some of the insights from the journey, and she just started crying because she, you know, I shared some particulars about the conversations I had with my dad when I was on that mushroom journey. And um, it was just profound. And I think, you know, I actually don't have a regular meditation practice anymore. I don't sit down in the seated position anymore. I used to for years off and on. Now I find that a lot in just walking in through the woods and being in nature. I do this quite a bit and I try to get to the park every single day and I, I always go without my phone. I never bring my phone with me. So if you're ever trying to reach me and I'm not picking up, it's because I'm likely in the woods. But that has been a really important part of me to come back to. It's like a homecoming and it allows me to remember um, what I'm here to do on this planet and to to trust the sort of the ebb and the flow of nature and like literally that I am nature, that we're nature, like we're not separate. And that to me is sort of like my meditation. Um, and that's helped me with integration and this continued trust building of like, I'm here for a reason and I'm not here to like look at spreadsheets and collect data for a company. It's not what I'm here to do. <laughs> so, yeah. Why are you here on this planet, Elisa? Deep question, Ksenia. Um, you know, it's a, uh, to me, it's it's felt so obvious for for some time, but in the past couple of years, I've really put words to it. I feel I feel very strongly that the trauma and the things that I've been through, the hardship, the loss, the physical pain that I've been through, has all been there to teach me um, how to work with people in a way that helps them use their experiences for their own personal and spiritual growth. Which doesn't mean bypassing it; it means sitting with the hard and having the skills to sit with the hard. You know, like my work is not about let's be positive, Pam, and like create the life you want and like you can have anything. I'm not Tony Robbins. It's like you're going to go through depression. You might lose your job. Your partner might cheat on you. Like these things can happen and they probably will happen in some capacity. And are you going to be ready with the right mental and spiritual skills to work with them? And I look back and I realize that inadvertently I was creating a toolbox since the time I was very, very young especially at 22 when everything hit the fan, I was creating a toolbox to survive. And that toolbox has now become the curriculum that I help people with. And that is the sense that I'm here to make, is to to make sense of what I've been through and help others do the same. Wow. I feel like we've covered so much territory. Is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you feel called to share? No, I mean, I think we've covered a lot. I, I feel... I feel really good about what we've shared. Is there anything that your cats would like to add to this conversation? We can only dream. Josie. Oh, cats. They're so interesting. You know, they're, they're sleeping, they're hiding. Their spiritual journey is like napping and snacks. So, you know, um, actually I'm doing a podcast soon, a solo podcast on this is like how much we can learn from animals. And I'm sure we could talk about this for a while, but like, man, they just, they have boundaries. They say no, no means no. Like 
they manage their energy, they get in fights and they move on. They don't carry drama like they are. They're kind of enlightened as far as I'm concerned. So <laughs> even alpacas, after they get into a fight, what they do when they get aggressive is they either spit at each other or they bite each other's legs. I've actually witnessed a couple of alpaca fights and it gets pretty intense. They make this like growling noises. And what they do after to regulate their nervous system is they open their mouth and they breathe really deeply through their mouth. I mean, alpacas, no breath work, you know, <laughs> and we as humans are just coming back to that knowledge. I, you're right. There's so much we can learn from animals. And I think one of the reasons why I've always been drawn to spend more time in nature and why Eric and I moved to this cabin in the woods is because I get to witness animals all the time. And one of my biggest games that I play almost every day is there's a couple of horses that live by the post office. And I always have apples with me hoping that they will be around and I can feed them and touch them. Just being in the presence of an animal as majestic as a horse, I find to be so such a profound invitation into presence in this moment. Yeah, they're always present animals, like as far as we know. Mm -hmm. I love that you live in the woods. Yesterday. Mm -hmm. in your cabin it's like uh, I'm happy for you and I also just want to get like a plot of land like a mile down the road from you and like <laughs> create my own little cabin and live that life I'm actually missing community very much we live in a town that doesn't have a traffic light mm. or a movie theater so uh, after a couple of years here I'm very much craving community and uh, we're looking at moving to Austin so we'll see I'm planting the seeds. To Boston, you said? You can only, to Austin. Oh, Austin, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So on the one hand, I'm very feeling very serene and at home and grounded being here and just watching the leaves change and watching the deer come at a certain time to this field every day, you know, and watching that time shift as the sun starts going down earlier this fall. But at the same time, I just know that I'm a communal being and I need to be able to drink cacao with people in person and to bring each other chocolate. So mm -hmm. I know that you're, you'll be visiting this area soon and I hope I do get to see you in person because I'm really calling in that, you know, in-person human connection. For sure. I can't wait for that. And I'm a huge fan of, you know, also too, Cassini, it's like the seasons of life. Like for a couple seasons of life, you you and Eric made the conscious choice to nest and to build this world in the woods and it's it's so served you and then you go through more seasons and that's the cool part is they keep coming. So, Right. And that's why I find that conversations like this and asking questions is so important so that we can hear what the guidance is and hear what the most expansive next step is, even if it makes no logical sense. So I thank you for embodying those principles in your life and making the courageous decisions. And before we wrap up, what are the best ways for people to connect with you and your work deeper? Um, well, thank you for having me again. This has been a really beautiful way to start my day um, and for just sharing my story and asking such great questions. Yeah, people can follow me. My website is uh, elisamaryhaggerty.com. And then also on Instagram, that's my handle. It's just my name, Elisa Mary Haggerty. And if people want to follow the School of Unlearning, we are on Apple and Spotify. And also um, our handle on Instagram is The Soul Podcast. So we have a great, um, your episode will be airing soon. And we have some incredible guests coming on. So I hope people follow along. Awesome. Thank you so much, Elisa. Have a beautiful weekend. Thank you. Thanks, Xenia. 
If you're moved by what was shared in this episode and not sure how to take action, start by writing it down. When we notice abundance and clarity in all shapes and forms and honor it, it grows. And if you're called to share the podcast with someone who you know is ready to receive it, follow that. Find all episodes, show notes, and current offerings on XeniaBrief.com. Subscribe to Xenia Brief Podcast on Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and a review, and take one deep breath into the knowing that's already within you.